You are listening to the Modus Morandi podcast, and I'm your host, Thomas Ikaru Clark. This podcast is dedicated to meaningful conversations on extremely random topics. I have wide-ranging interests, and I'm fortunate to know some pretty amazing people from different disciplines and walks of life. I find that extended conversations are a way to cut through the noise, question your preconceived notions, and learn new things. If you like this podcast, the best way to support it is to share it with friends. You can also connect with me on Instagram at Modus Mirandi to stay up to date, submit questions, or provide feedback. The guest for this episode is Mike Agrippina. Mike is a consultant turned teacher from Atlanta. After teaching in Jacksonville, Florida for two years through Notre Dame's ACE program, he returned to Atlanta where he currently teaches at Cristo Rey Jesuit High School. He is passionate about faith, family, and fitness. Mike is a good friend of mine from my teaching days in Jacksonville, Florida. And I'm really grateful for him uh, taking the time out of his busy teaching day to talk with me on the podcast. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Mike Agrippina. Hi, Mike. How are you? Hey, Thomas. I am excellent. Thank you so much for having me on. This is exciting. Yeah, no, it's it's great to great to talk to you. Great to catch up. It's been way too long. Um, so the kind of the first uh, question I want to ask to get us started here is your unique story coming into teaching. So you're you're currently a teacher, but you had a um, experience before teaching. Uh, you know your job after college, where you worked as a consultant. So that's sort of a non traditional trajectory coming from out of college to working as a consultant for a couple of years, and then and then into teaching where you are now. So what was that process like? What made you um, follow this lead? What have you learned along the way? Absolutely. Yeah, I'm happy to talk through that. So when I got to college, like many of us, I did not know what I wanted to be when I grew up. So I was trying to figure out what to major in and had been told by many people who I trusted business is a good background to have no matter what you do, that it's it's a beneficial thing. So I knew at least one of my majors, I wanted to be business administration. And then I also had this passion for writing and communication and journalism. So I majored in mass communications as well. And as I went through kind of trying different things with internships, I wasn't sure how I wanted to apply this business and communications background. And my junior year, I did a study abroad course in Copenhagen that was centered on corporate social responsibility. And we essentially functioned as student consultants and we got to partner with these awesome companies in Copenhagen that were really conscious of their impact and how business affected society. So it was almost like the best case scenario of consulting like you're working with purpose-driven companies on a short-term project where you see a clear takeaway. And that experience really convinced me to pursue consulting full-time. So my senior year, I started studying all the case interviews, learning the ropes, networking, and all that. And I was able to get an offer that fall from Deloitte Consulting in Atlanta. So that was my first job. And I I kind of had teaching in the back of my head, but once I got that offer, it seemed like an affirmation of this is the path that I should go down. So the actually the mixed blessing in this whole thing is that um, my offer didn't start until January. So I graduated in May. I had an, a full time job waiting for me in January, but that left me that six month gap. And like I said, I always kind of had this teaching inclination or passion. So I was like, oh, this is a great time to test drive that and also to travel, hopefully. So I was able to find a volunteer teaching position in Italy. So I was in Torino for the fall after my senior year. And I lived with a host family. I was like an English teacher assistant at a high school there. And it was the first time I had really thought about teaching as a career. 
both of my host parents were teachers. I could see what the lifestyle was like. I was in Italy, which is, you know, just an incredible place to be. Yeah. Oh, yeah. So it, it kind of validated for me like, oh, this this could be more than just a volunteer thing or a hobby or an extracurricular. Like this is a pretty sweet life that these people have. And I could feel the connections I was building with kids and the impact you could make. So that definitely um, was an impactful experience. And then I almost contrasted that, right? I come back from Italy around Christmas time, started Deloitte in January, and it was like going from one extreme to another in terms of work-life balance and priorities and all of that. Um, so the business world was, uh, I'm trying to think how to describe this because I learned a lot from it and I'm thankful for it, but it wasn't the right fit for me. You know, we each have our own gifts. Some people are meant to be consultants and they're incredible at it and that's life-giving and energizing, but that wasn't the case for me. Uh, I liked that I could try different industries, different places, different teams, but I didn't like the nature of the work itself where, you know, you fly to a city on Monday, you're there till Thursday, and every day you pretty much go hotel to office and then back to the hotel, right? So it's like, for me, I was sitting in the same room with maybe two people for 14 hours a day, looking at a screen, taking notes on calls. It was just, uh, it was too sedentary. It was too isolated. There was a lot of things that just didn't really work well. They wasn't as compatible with me. Uh, but it kind of took me a while to figure that out because in my head, I was like, man, I'm kind of hitting out of my league here. Like this is a really high level job. I'm working with all these really smart people and big name companies. I should be thankful that I'm here. So it was it was a process for me to work up the courage to say, yes, even though those things are true, you know, this is a great company. I'm getting very well compensated, all of that. That doesn't mean that this is what I'm supposed to do with my life. So yeah. that was a long process. It's hard to figure out. Um, but eventually it led me to explore options in teaching. Thinking back to this experience I had in Italy, to a lot of my teachers who were huge role models for me, I started to reconnect with some of them and kind of talk to them about their, their experiences. And one common factor with many of my high school teachers is that they were alumni of the ACE program from Notre Dame which, as you know, is a two-year program um, where you get your Master of Education and you work at an under-resourced Catholic school. So I started to explore that. Um, it, I, it appealed to me in that it was time-bound. It had a clear degree at the end of it. There was no cost to it, right? I could envision myself, okay, I'm going to go all in for two years and really give this a shot and see if this is what I want to do or not. So I started to talk with people in ACE and explore that process and eventually applied and got accepted. And that was really the scariest part because that's when the reality hit. I was like, oh man, I'm really about to leave consulting to go teach middle school in Florida. Um, so I remember having this tough moment of like grappling with this reality and, and trying to work up the courage and walking to a meeting in my client site and seeing somebody had written on the board, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. And that was like God speaking right to my heart and like affirming to me. No matter if teaching is what I want to do with my life or not, I'm going to be spending my days doing something I care about, something positive, something life-giving. So to me, that's exactly what I was looking for, and that was the encouragement I needed. Wow. Yeah, that's that's such an interesting story. I mean, I think I love that you have that perspective to give because um, few few people my age, I think, know what it's like to be at, at that position where you really feel this fork in the road. I mean, I think, you know, everyone has a fork in the road of, of various kinds, but knowing that you could either just keep going down the path of least resistance and go with the flow. And it's obviously so easy. You have the job, you know, you, it's, it's 
very tempting to perhaps just you know push through and and put up with various aspects of it that you may not find ideal but in this case you you took quite a radical change of career path um so in the end would you say that um you know as you've said and i would completely agree it's no one's going to like regret spending two years and giving it your all in teaching but was your expectation really borne out or was it different or how did it fit or not fit your your expectations of teaching that's a good question I think that it was it was different than I expected. It was harder than I expected. I might have come in with a little arrogance of like, I have done a very hard job before and I know I'm going to be working less hours and I'm going to be do some, doing something I like more. So in my head, that just meant it would be easier. And it was it was a whole different category of challenging, right? Like in business, yeah. when you make a mistake, there's a financial consequence perhaps for your client or maybe you get a, a hard conversation with a manager when you're a teacher, it's so much more personal and emotional and you feel this responsibility to help guide children, right? Like it's, it's a different level, of, uh, it's a different weight that you feel as a teacher. So um, I think that that burden and responsibility and privilege was something that I didn't expect until I got there. And it's something that made me elevate my game. It made me want to be a better man so I could be authentic. And if I'm going to tell kids that this is the right way to live, I need to model that and actually own it. So for me, more than just the professional development of growing as an educator and a leader and a communicator, I think it really spurred a personal development in me and a spiritual development that I would not have gotten otherwise. So I'm super thankful for ACE and yeah, it, it, it exceeded expectations. Wow, yeah, yeah, no, that a lot of what you said resonates, I think, with me as well, because I do think there's this unfortunate stereotype that's cast teaching as, um, oh, it's not that hard, or, oh, you get off by 3 p.m. every day, or you get, you know, June, July, and August off. It's what an what a easy job. Anyone could do it. And there's sort of all these disparaging stereotypes, whether it's in the media or just from people that, that you might sometimes hear about teaching, which, you know, if you've actually lived through it, will strike you as very, very unfair. And, you know, not to say that there aren't bad teachers. Yes, I mean, there are plenty of bad teachers in the world, right? It's not like everyone who is in the job of teaching is is amazing at it and is giving it their all and has invested fully in their classrooms and in their students. But for those who do, it is a very demanding job. And I think it, as you said, it really calls you to this higher standard of professionalism, of being a role model, of showing up, not just showing up at work, you know, with you know, a coffee in hand and ready to slug through the day, but with enthusiasm, with care for your students and showing them that you are happy to be there and excited to teach because that I think is so important. There's this, you know, we, I had this uh, mentor in ACE um, uh, who, who taught our high school methods course and he used to say, um, students don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And that really stuck with me because, you know, it doesn't really matter how many degrees you have or how smart you are or how many life experiences you've had. If you don't care about your classroom and care about the students, then you're not gonna get that same level of engagement. You're not gonna get the results that you hope. It's, it's more than just the content. It's about creating an atmosphere. It's about showing up and, and building that personal relationship with each and every student that, that is so powerful and that has so much potential. Um, but yeah, it is, it, is it is a challenging job to do right and to do well. You'll always feel like perhaps there was more you could have done. And I think that's why it can often be draining for, for some teachers because, you know, if, if it's 9 p.m. and you feel that your lesson isn't 100% perfect, you want to put in that extra hour and stay up late to make it perfect because, because you care. Um, yeah, so, so absolutely, I think um, what you said 
totally, totally resonates with me as well. Um, but yeah, let's, yeah. let's dive into sort of your experience in the classroom. So, so we both did ACE and we both taught in Jacksonville. Um, what was, what was sort of your first day like? What, what was it like when you walk into a classroom um, and suddenly, you know, you haven't taught in that context before, as you said, you've, you've taught um, English in Italy, but you walk into a classroom with middle schoolers. What are you, what is going through your mind? How did you approach that day? And what did you think at the end of the day when you got back from teaching on day one? That's a great question. I remember going in. So yeah, I taught middle school English in Jacksonville. And I remember like the pre-teaching, the week you go in for like training. So we're fresh off of a summer. We're enthusiastic. We're, we're rookies. And I remember being surprised at the lack of oversight, right? Like how much autonomy they give you as like a young guy who's never done this before. Yep. And I remember like showing the teacher next door my first day lesson and being like, is this okay? Like, does this match expectations? I just... I didn't have a concept. I'm like, when's the last time I was in sixth grade? You know, it's been so long. I don't know what the expectation is. I don't know if this is going to fit. So there was this uncertainty or lack of confidence where you're just like, I'm going to do my best, but I don't know how this is going to be received, right? Like if my method, if my personality, if any of this is going to be what the kids are used to, or if it's going to be totally different and new. But at the same time, a ton of excitement and enthusiasm and kind of feeling like, okay, We've been practicing and talking about this for eight weeks of a summer. We've been doing summer school and taking classes like now it's game time. Now I get to actually do it because that's how the growth occurs, right? That's how we learn is to jump in the deep end and make mistakes and get better. So I think I had that sense of like, okay, I know it's not going to be perfect, but I want it to happen and I'm ready to jump in. And like what you said about communicating the care for students, trying to like set that tone very early on of the relational aspect of teaching and that, you know, this is going to matter to me more than just teaching you about adjectives and nouns. I'm trying to really get to know you and teach you these certain values. Um, most of us are in it for, for that more than for the subject matter, right? It's, it's for something deeper that you also want to instill in your students. So I always try to do that in my first lesson of the year to, to open that door for them. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so let's get let's get specific here. Do you do you have any specific tips for for teachers who are looking to build that engagement, to build that rapport with students? Um, and I think later we can get on to you know teaching during COVID. I think, but for now, let's just start with during normal times, right? So during your uh, two years in ACE when things were relatively normal, how how do you go about creating that culture where students feel at home, where students feel comfortable, where they feel like their voice is heard, where learning can take place? where it's more than just, you know, cramming for a test and um, getting ideas put into your head, but coming in excited to learn. What are some specific things that you did or that you would recommend teachers consider? That's a great question. So I think from a, from a high level, vulnerability is a big area of growth for me and area of emphasis in the classroom, where if I model that, if I am vulnerable about my myself, my shortcomings, my mistakes, and how that's kind of affected my life, then it kind of destigmatizes it and kids are more likely to also be open. So for example, in my class, we made failure resumes where you go back through your life and you list out all these different ways in which you failed, right? So for I me, I, that. yeah, like elementary school, like losing student council elections or high school, like asking a girl to prom who had a date getting rejected or college, like getting cut from the basketball team, like I'm standing up in front of this group of kids and telling them all these different ways in which I failed and made mistakes 
right? And some of them, they had good outcomes. I learned from them or I pivoted and did something else or whatever. Other ones, you're like, hey, I just took the L. You know, it was a mistake. But by by doing that and then encouraging them to do the same thing and giving them a platform to own those and talk about them, um, I think that that kind of opens the door of like, oh, this is going to be different. We can talk about this stuff. This isn't something you have to hide. So modeling vulnerability is something I'm a big fan of. Um, the other thing that I think helped my kids connect more deeply than just the subject matter was really trying to bring in current events. And, you know, I think we have this responsibility to almost facilitate civil conversation and show them how that works, right? And as a teacher, I never wanted to impart my point of view, but I did want them to become more empathetic and considering other point of views. So, you know, we might talk about something like Colin Kaepernick's protest and, you know, why he's doing that and why each side thinks what they think. And if my kids can leave understanding that on a lot of these issues, there are good people on both sides, there are smart people on both sides, and it's worthwhile to use that mental energy to put yourself in their shoes. Um, I think that that is becoming more and more important, right, in our in our civil and political discourse, that ability to see both sides and kind of meet in the middle. Um, I think that helped kids think more deeply about my class because they were able to talk about stuff that they already cared about that mattered. And it just, it gave it a different level of importance. Yeah. I, I really like that. I really like bringing in the uh, current events, especially because I think at, at, you know, even in middle school, but certainly in high school, students are at the age where they are thinking, they're capable of thinking about big, complicated issues. We shouldn't be treating students as if they're very delicate and fragile and can't be uh, posed with anything even slightly controversial, right? I think some people might cringe at the idea of talking to your students about something controversial like Colin Kaepernick, but I, I quite the opposite. I think it's vital that you you teach them the skills to discuss in a civil and reasonable way without letting your emotions get the better of you and, and looking at different sides of a debate. I, I think that's absolutely crucial. Um, so that's, I think, a really, really great way that you can, I think, both show that you you treat them as grownups that you're treat that you're giving them the responsibility to engage in that conversation and also building skills that will help them certainly in high school and in college and beyond. Yeah, yeah, and then the way that we respond if a kid says something out of line or if they disparage one of their roommate or one of their classmates, right? Like the way we respond to that kind of shows what we're going to tolerate and I think that can also create a, a safer welcoming environment. If they're like, "Oh, He's not going to let somebody say a negative comment like that. That's not tolerated in this classroom. So it, it's almost like what you enforce in those more controversial settings that also can contribute to building a better class environment, because then students will see like, oh, if this kid made a mistake or if this kid said something and he wasn't reprimanded, then maybe I can also try. So the whole growth mindset idea, right? Like we were we were given that a lot in ACE. But to me, that's one of the central things is like. Wanting kids to try and not be afraid of how they're looked at or of messing up in front of others at an age when the social pressure is so key. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And and that brings us to a topic that, you know, is always a little difficult to talk about, which is discipline and discipline in the classroom. But I think, again, it's one of these things that's vital for teachers and people in education to, to consider um, because, you know, just speaking from my own experience here, you know, I learned a lot about discipline in the classroom and enforcing norms of behavior between my first and my second year. I think my first year, um, I was in some ways too soft and 
Um, I think a lot of teachers come in wanting to be nice, wanting to be liked, and that's fine. That's great. But I think there is a danger in putting being liked above enforcing the rules that you set, the guidelines and the expectations that, that you want. And I do think that there is a way to enforce those while still showing that you care, while still being a compassionate and warm presence in the classroom. It is a fine balance, but I think between my first and my second year, I, I thought a lot about how to tweak certain things to make sure that rules were being followed, that um, you know, in a case like that where someone says something out of line, that first second when you respond is, is crucial. It, it really matters how you treat, um, uh, whether it's an outburst or someone saying something that's, that's uh, negative or disparaging towards another student, um, how you react models for the students how they should react in the future. Um, and I think I, I learned a lot of lessons about how to do that. I think I learned that it's important to be, again, to use a favorite phrase of, of one of my supervisors, to be firm, fair, and consistent. Uh, and that sounds a bit like a cliche, but I think I really did genuinely struggle with it at the beginning. And only later did I see that I could still be nice, I could still be caring, while occasionally giving punishments for um, students who broke rules or um, calling people out when they, when they did something wrong. I think the most important thing is to not lose your temper while doing so, um, to maintain the avenues, the channels of communication, even when you're perhaps doling out uh, discipline in some way, right? So like if a student says something, like uses foul language or says, says something inappropriate, um, to not just give out a punishment and cut that student off from connection with you, but to invite them to have a conversation with you after class in which you can express in a private, one-on-one -on -one context what went wrong um, and have an uh, opportunity for discussion and then leave on good terms, as you said, growth mindset of, of working towards being better in the future. And I, that, I cannot overemphasize how much that helped my classroom going from first year to second year and establishing these norms of discipline, which again is, is this thing that people don't really like talking about, but it is important for running an effective classroom. So do you have any thoughts on that, on, on how to get behavior to conform to the standards that are appropriate for a classroom without, I guess, turning students off to you as, as a person. Yeah, it's such a challenge. And I, I really, I agree with what you said and appreciate that. The one-on-one -on -one context, the conversation piece where you can, you can actually have a little bit of a deeper comprehension behind why this is unacceptable is, is really critical. Um, I think the other key distinction is making sure that they know you're criticizing the behavior and not the person, right? So I understand that like, we don't do this in my classroom. I want you to be a part of this classroom, right? It's like your behavior is unacceptable. You are loved and cared for. It's a, it's a difficult thing to communicate both of those at once. And like you said, it's, you have to do it in a split second. So it's, it's an extremely challenging thing to do correctly. And I think there's this inherent tension between mercy and justice, right? We see that God is both perfectly merciful and perfectly just. We don't do that as well. <laughs> I think I also tend to the mercy side because I want to be liked. And like you said, that's, that's not a sustainable solution as a teacher. You can't continually let things go because you want to be nice and be liked. So learning how to enforce that boundary um, is pretty crucial. And for me, it did come down to the little habits that I would instill of like pulling kids out for one-on-one -on -one conversations or having like physical gestures where they knew that a certain thing meant to stop, right? You can do nonverbal communications because at the same time, if one kid is being disruptive, you don't want to disrupt the lesson for the other 22. 
if you can keep things moving during the actual direct instruction and then delegate your discipline to later, right? That's ideal in most cases. So learning when, I guess, picking your battles, like when do you need to have this confrontation in front of everybody? I hopefully pretty rarely. And when can you just stop it in the moment and then have, have a more in-depth conversation later? And in the one-on-one conversation, how can I show the student that I, I'm still loving them, but I'm also challenging them to be better because their behavior is not acceptable. And that's something I certainly haven't mastered yet. This is probably one of the hardest things about teaching for me. Yeah. Yeah. It's definitely an ongoing, ongoing thing. And as you, as we say for our students, we encourage growth mindset. I think teachers have to have the same mindset as well, that we're, that we're constantly growing. I think coming in thinking that you are going to be the best teacher ever is, is a recipe for, for failure because we always have to be open to, to growing and to learning new things. And I definitely learned new things from people in my ACE cohort or my supervisors or my colleagues at my school, um, or just from experience. Um, and being open to that is, is very important. Um, okay, so enough about discipline. We don't have to keep talking about that. Um, but I, I'm, I'm wondering, so coming from a business and consulting background, did you, did you find that experience to be helpful in being a teacher in any way? Did you find that having worked um, in the business world helped you run a classroom more effectively or efficiently? Let's see. There, there were definitely some parallels that I thought were helpful. If I'm being honest, in the business world, I wasn't often in a position where I was leading, right? There's there's much more of a defined hierarchy in which when you're the business analyst, right, you're the lowest one on the totem pole, you're the one kind of taking the notes, doing all of the, uh, you're, you're taking orders, not giving them, essentially. Um, so, you know, towards the end of my time there, I started to move into some leadership roles, but for the most part, that was a little bit new. What I do think it, it helped me bring was a very high standard. Like in, in consulting, it's like, what is a deliverable quality? What are you going to deliver to the client? And I remember bringing that into teaching, like making my lessons. I was always very organized. I had my slides, right? So I brought a certain skill set that allowed me to be, to, to kind of think through things. So we often would make project management plans in consulting where you're like, over these six months, the company has to achieve all of these action items if our transition date's going to happen, whatever the big project is. So I was used to thinking in that way of like, over this span of time, we need to accomplish these objectives to meet our ultimate goal. And that converted to teaching really well. And I think that my structured way of thinking that I learned from business um, helped me as a teacher to not get overwhelmed, but to really segment things out and organize them and stay on top of it. Um, I do think that as a teacher, I developed more in the leadership sense and learned a lot of things that could that could be transferable and relevant to business. Because as a teacher, you do a lot more of that setting a vision, creating a culture for your classroom, which in business, you often don't, you don't get the privilege to do that kind of stuff until you're like a CEO level kind of person, or you have your own business. But as a teacher, you're 23 years old, and you're thrown in there and they're like, all right, it's your job to create your own class culture. And to like to create this company people are going to believe in and the kids are going to come every day and they're going to do consistent high level work with a good attitude, that kind of obligation, it's pretty rare to have that at such a young age. So I think that that's a, a gift of teaching for sure. Yeah, yeah, I like that. So actually, as a teacher, you're higher up, you're 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 the CEO, essentially, you're the CEO of your classroom. I, I really like that. 
analogy. And I, I agree that it is a lot of responsibility to, to have as a young teacher. But um, definitely, I, I completely agree with you that it helped me in a lot of the same ways that that you've mentioned. Um, yeah, I just think back to, you know, all, as you said, so much autonomy, right? Like, really, it's up to you to determine the direction. There's certain standards, of course, that you have to hit. And perhaps your school will tell you what textbook you're using to teach. Um, or, you know, you may have a department chair who's guiding you. But the lar largely, the day-to-day the -day decisions are completely up to you. The order of certain lessons, or how to teach something, or what tools to use. Um, and all the extra learning things, like the, the building of classroom culture and all that, little classroom traditions, um, that's all up to you. And if you can succeed doing that in a classroom, if you can create a place where people want to be and, and are effective, I, I do think that you're really learning a lot about about leadership there. I think like for me, I didn't have the experience that you did of, of working in business for a bit, but before teaching, I had, uh, during my time in college, worked as an orientation leader. So um, I, it was called Outdoor Action, and we led these orientation wilderness trips for uh, incoming freshmen. So basically, we would take the freshmen as soon as they come to campus and then take them for a week out into the wilderness um, and do orientation out, you know, sleeping in tents uh, on the Appalachian Trail, you know, out in, out in the middle of nowhere, um, or, you know, in, in various uh, campgrounds or, or different places away from civilization. And, you know, during that time on those trips, that was the first time that I, as a leader of a trip, was put in a position where I was responsible for something. I was the ultimate person of responsibility in that, in that context. I'd never really been in that situation before, right? I mean, all the leaders were trained in, in medical skills in case something bad happened. If someone got hurt, you had to be the one. Yes, you could call for help, but help might not come. So you had to be trained in medical skills. You had to be trained in group dynamics and leadership skills. You know, you were trained on not just how to help people survive, but help people thrive. You were the ones, you know, as the leaders, you were not only determining, you know, how to get to the next campsite, but how you would keep people's spirits high when, you know, um, the, you know, mosquitoes were biting and the food wasn't that tasty and the rain starts pouring and it's cold and damp, um, you know, and you're the one having to come up with songs to sing and games to play and ways to cheer people up. And, and I, I found that those skills translated extremely well uh, to the classroom. That's amazing. Yeah, those those are the skills that you can't learn from reading a book. Like you have to do it. And you're going to face adversity. You're going to have the kid who hurts his ankle or like your, whatever it is, like on the trip. I'm sure they're unexpected things. And until you're in the position and you are the one reacting and making the calls, there's no way to really mimic that except to do it. And yeah, teaching throws you into that from day one, right? Like you are the one that's answering you're, you're the one like you're responsible for your class for the lives of those kids. So it's a different kind of responsibility. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So I, I'm wondering, Mike, if, if I were going to sit in on one of your classes, let's say any class that you've taught in the last three years, if me and a bunch of uh, our friends from ACE are going to sit in as observers in one of your classes, which lesson would it be? Which lesson do you find was very memorable that you're proud of that you would want to um, teach again and show show your friends. Does, is there maybe you can't even pick one, but is there a lesson that you would um, go back to and and uh, that you keep thinking back to as as a great lesson that you really enjoyed? Oh, I really like that question. That's a good one. So I'm actually thinking I added this as a line item on my resume um, after uh, my teaching. You know, you have the bullet points, and I made my last bullet point favorite lessons because. I was like, this nice. would be such a cool thing to talk about in an interview because 
right, you know this, you created some really memorable lessons. Like as a teacher, you pour a lot into these and you had, you do have these certain favorites. So probably number one would be the failure as a maze, but I already talked about that. Um, for me, like a couple of moments where kids shared something that they would have been afraid to before and it kind of opened it up and their classmates like cheered them on for it. So that was a really memorable and transformational one. The other one I liked, I also drew on my business experience. Um, the eighth wonder of the world, compound interest. So I would like start my lessons with this mini lesson, bell work, where it was almost like I just get to talk about something I'm passionate about or like the current events or whatever it was before we get into our grammar. Um, so this lesson, we started off with the icebreaker. Would you rather have $1 million or one penny that doubles every day for a month? And you know, every middle schooler's first reaction is like a million dollars. Let's go. Right. And then you pull up the math and they quickly see how that penny, you know, after the first week, it's not that much second week, a little bit more third week. And then the fourth week, it becomes astronomical because now you're doubling in the hundreds of thousands. Right. And you end up with well over a million dollars if you follow that path out. So that led us to the discussion of compound interest, which was like one of my favorite things I learned about in finance class in college. I had a really great professor who would show us all these graphs about the value of money growing over time. And I also read a book that applied the concept of compound interest to our personal habits. So I tried to draw that parallel as well, like showing kids, first of all, how money can grow over time and how even if something only improves by like 5% every year, as long as that improvement is happening on a larger sum each year, the end result is humongous over time. And then talking about how that can apply to your personal habits, right? Like I'm going to do 10 push-ups every night for a year. I'm going to read 10 pages a day. Uh, I'm going to whatever habit you want to form, I'm going to pray for a certain amount of time every day. It's small things, very manageable, digestible things. But over time, the effect of them can be humongous, right? Because we get a little bit stronger, a little bit better each each year. So I love that lesson because my hope is it it showed students the value in the small things that a lot of times it's easy to dismiss them as like, oh, what's the point? I'm not going to do that. And it just kind of reminded them that consistency is key. And as long as you do it over time, it can it can change your life. I like that. Yeah. That, I mean, that could be a math lesson. I, actually, I think I literally asked the same question to some of my math students and it led to a, quite a different discussion, but it, still the, the compound interest connection. And I love how you made a connection to personal habits. I think like taking a very powerful and counterintuitive result, whether it's in you know the context of math or whatever class you teach and finding a way to apply it to something relevant to daily life. Uh, that That's a brilliant teaching move right there. Um, got to cool. start so, with that hook and like get, yeah, get their attention with something. Right. Yeah, I absolutely, absolutely. And, and you mentioned bell work, right? So like, I mean, I also would try to, you know, some days the bell work would just be, you know, get your homework out and review it with a neighbor or something like that. But for my like all time top 10 lessons or whatever, it would always start with some like really, really, uh, interesting bell work or something that hook to get them, get them engaged. And yeah, you want, you want students to walk into the classroom during the you know five minute passing period, and sit down immediately and start like looking at the looking at the board and working on it. Right, that's when you know you've succeeded because you know students who could be still on their phone or out in the hallway talking to their friends are are coming into the classroom and just to see what's what's on your board and they want to solve it. And I had students who would do that who would you know come in and give up technically what was their free time to you know get a head start on on the hook that I'd given them. And 
uh, that that's a priceless feeling when, when you can achieve that. That is huge, especially knowing your audience. You're like, man, if I get teenage boys excited about learning, like I'm doing something right because that is a hard audience for sure. But if I could turn the tables on you, could you share one of those one of those memorable lessons with us? Because I I know you had a couple oh, of really okay. uh, really good highlights. Yeah. Okay. Sure. Sure. Yeah. 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 You're absolutely welcome to turn the tables on me. Uh, I I will try my best to uh, be in the hot seat and answer the questions as well. Um, but. I don't know if I'll be able to choose one. I think, so I, I had several um, different, I guess, templates for lessons. I think, so just to back up a bit, to to make teaching efficient, I, I kind of had structures in place when I was planning to make the planning process be more efficient so that I would waste less time just sitting there thinking abstractly and, you know, running ideas through my head but not coming up with anything. I basically had some plug and play sort of structures that I could, you know, they were modular and I could insert different content into them, um, but but be familiar with the general structure. So one of these was the escape room. So I would usually use this as a review activity before a test. So when we're gonna have a test, let's say on math or something, um, you, the, the day or maybe two days before the test, I would create an escape room in which students had to use their mathematical knowledge from that unit in order to escape the room. Um, and these are always fun. I mean, they, they're not the most uh, traditional lessons in the ACE template. There wasn't exactly a, you know, students will be able to blank um, lesson objective for each of them. It was, it was more of just a fun review activity. But I, I saw students get very invested and engaged in this, which was always rewarding for me. Uh, and the look of sort of confusion turning into awareness and enlightenment uh, when they solve one of the steps um, was was always amazing to see. The prize at the end would always be something. I mean, they wouldn't actually get to leave school or escape the room, but they would get some sort of candy prize or something. Um, and for most people, that didn't matter at all. They didn't actually care about the candy that much. What they wanted was to just solve the problem. They wanted to just crack the puzzle. That was it. And, you know, for, for students who in other times would often just be saying, do I have to do this? Or when can I be done with this worksheet? Or what's the minimum I, I can put in? You know, to have them just be genuinely motivated, almost frantic to, to solve a math problem was just, oh, I had to, I had to chuckle to myself. But so for example, let, let's look at what some of them would be, I guess. But one of my, one of my, uh, one of the things I would do, I got, I would go to like a uh, Walmart and get a combination lock for like two bucks. I mean, they're like super cheap. Wouldn't recommend them if you have serious valuables, but you know, get one of these cheap combination locks and then write down the the number, you know, the, the passcode, whatever it is, like, you know, 14, 39, 12 or something, you know, and come up with a math problem whose answer is that number, okay, which as a math teacher, it's actually not that hard, right? Like, I mean, there are many ways you can come up with, there are many problems you can create, infinitely many problems you can create that have a given answer. Um, but the students would always be just mind blown because they would see the problem, they would solve it, they might be wrong, it wouldn't open the lock, they would go back, try it again, fix it, and then magically this lock would open and inside the box that was locked would be another clue for the next math problem. And they would always say things like, how did you do that? How did, how did you make <laughs> the answer to that question turn out to be that number? How, how did you know? And of course, it's not about knowing, it's just about you know working backwards and <laughs> inverse functions and all that. But um, just, just that look of wonder, I guess, on their face was amazing. Um, another thing I did was, um, this is still on the escape room, uh, on the escape room thing, but um, I would have a number be a coordinate, like a GPS coordinate. So they would solve the math problem, get a GPS coordinate, and then they'd have to plug it into Google Earth. 
And then when you plug in a cord, like you can plug in just the latitude and longitude into Google Earth. And it will like, it does this really cool effect where it like zooms out to like see the whole world. And then it zooms in gradually to the location. So for one of them, um, it, they, they solved the math problem. They got the right coordinates. They plug it in and it just, you see their iPads and they just zoom into Paris, France to the Eiffel Tower. And they just see the zooming in and the Eiffel Tower emerges from, from their own screen. And, you know, this is just from numbers that they plugged in by solving a math problem. And they see the Eiffel Tower. And we have, I had a picture of the Eiffel Tower in my classroom. Um, so then they knew to go over there and, like, look behind it. And the next clue was behind that picture. And, you know, um, things like that to just keep them excited to, to solve the next step. So I would say that's sort of like that was one of my favorite activities to do. I wouldn't necessarily say it was a specific lesson, but, but I really enjoyed that. That's amazing. I love how you connected it to the physical world to like things in the classroom that they could see and touch and also like created that sense of urgency like you said to where kids who are naturally competitive but not usually they don't usually get to apply that in academics so like creating that competition moment that's huge i, I love that idea yeah, yeah, it was it was super fun. I, I guess I should also give a more like traditional lesson with like a, you know, lesson objective and and all of that. Um, so I guess I'll give an example from computer science because I talked about math, but I was also an, an AP computer science teacher. Um, so um, there were lots of, of things that I talked about, but I probably my my favorite one was one about recursion. So recursion in computer science is the process of making uh, a function that is defined in terms of itself. So this is this is a little mind bending, right? But recursion generally basically means like nesting within itself, right? So you might think of those Russian nesting dolls. That's kind of like recursion, or um, basically anything that contains a copy of itself inside of it. Um, and so, um, in computer science, what you can do is you can define functions recursively. So if you want to say like make a function that computes n factorial, right? N factorial, like five factorial would be five times four times three times two times one. But what you can do is you can say if you need a function that gets you n factorial, it's just n times n minus one factorial, right? Because n minus one factorial will give you the four times three times two times one. And then you just have to multiply that by n. So you can define a function in terms of itself. So it's a sort of clever way that you can condense a function at a very small amount of code. So I wanted to introduce that concept. So for the bell work, uh, well, so I usually started the, you know, we taught in Catholic school and we started the day with, with a prayer and I like to do different things for a prayer each day. So some, you know, Mondays would be musical Mondays and we'd listen to maybe a Gregorian chant or something. But this day I, I, I couldn't come up with a good, uh, a good, uh, alliterative name for this, but I, I called it something like aesthetic Thursday where, you know, we would have some sort of aesthetic or, you know, a piece of art or something. So I had a painting and there's this like 13th or 14th century altarpiece. I forget who the author is. Um, but it's this like painting and it shows like the nativity scene or something. So I just had that on the board and we did kind of like a kind of traditional boring kind of prayer that the students didn't really think too much about. And then they kind of thought that was it. But actually this painting came back later in the lesson because this is a very special altarpiece because on this altarpiece, which is this painting of the nativity, in the corner of the painting is a figure of the donor of the, the painting. So basically the patron who provided the funds for the artist holding a copy of the painting itself. No so this way. is actually a thing that people did, right? So artists would want to be in their own paintings that they paid for, but they're usually holding the work of art that they sponsored. So the the painting in the corner is a figure holding the painting. And if you look carefully, you can see in that painting, in the corner, just as a really tiny dot, 
a copy of that paint and you know in theory it would go on forever right so it's this sort of recursive idea yeah exactly it's this inception idea so we came back to that so later in the in the lesson i talked about recursion and i gave several different examples of this so one of them would be like i don't know if you've ever seen the land of lakes butter and it has this native american woman who's holding a package of land of lakes butter and she's on the package and you know it's basically a recursive artwork where you know it goes deeper and deeper and deeper forever um so i gave that as an example and then i came back to the painting that we started the class off with and then they had to find they you know they found that that recursive painting in the corner and that's sort of how i introduced the idea so then everyone kind of understood what recursion was and then from there we could dive into actually writing programs um that would that would implement that um, but, you know, wanting to start off with a basic understanding of it at an intuitive level before getting into the nitty gritty of how do we actually write this in code. That's such a good technique. Yeah, I love that, too. Giving them some way to visualize because that is a, it's a complicated idea if you just explain it in terms of the numbers. But then when you see it, like you said, it's a different it's a different kind of comprehension. So that's a good teacher trick of just communication in general before trying to explain the nitty gritty giving some kind of relatable thing that ties into it. I think that's that's pretty valuable in general. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Yeah. And then I of need course to look up to face the Yeah, the, you know, Land you know, of Lakes Butter next time I'm at yeah, the store. Yeah, well they actually changed they changed the packaging so it doesn't show that anymore. But I remember as a kid <sighs> being fascinated by this because you know it just it, this it goes on forever, right? She's holding a package of the butter, which has her on it, which then has another package of butter on it and so on and so forth. <laughs> you can also get this, right? If you face like two mirrors against each other and you get that sort of mirror tunnel, or if you like hook up a camera to a TV and then you point that camera at the TV and you know, you, there's oh, lots yeah. of ways to sort of get this, get this recursion effect. Um, but yeah, th it's one thing to, I guess, like visualize and that's always a great way to start. But then of course you have to dive into actually the details of, okay, what's the learning objective? How are we going to teach the kids to actually code this up? Um, so you, you have to come down from the, the high level and then, you know, make it concrete. Um, but I do like starting with, with the intuitive understanding and then doing more concrete examples. Yeah, it's fun to look back at different, different ways and like of how we grew over the teaching careers because I feel like first year, there were so many instances of just trying stuff and not knowing what's going to work and not having it work. And it's almost like those shortcomings are what pushed us to try different things and to come up with better techniques and to talk with our cohort mates and to get that negative feedback from our advisor. Like all of that kind of informed us in our improvement. So I, I like the process of teaching from that perspective too, because every day you are auditioning material and if it doesn't work, you get immediate feedback because you can look up to your students and know if it's working or not. So it's like a very, yeah quick feedback loop yeah yeah absolutely it's like you're running little experiments here and there yeah and i think that that is sort of the eternal challenge of teaching right because something might work for 95 percent of the students but then if it doesn't work for that five percent you know you can't just give up on them right so even if the experiment would be considered successful by any other standard um you have to keep things varied keep trying different things keep doing individual interventions um, because you do learn, you do come up with new techniques that are better and better, but, um, you can't just say, Oh, 95% good. This works for most kids. So, you know, we're just going to stick with this from now on. You have to keep, you always have to be on your toes. You always have to be looking out and seeing who might benefit from some additional, um, ways of explanation or, or, you know, I, I love the idea in teaching of multiple ways of representation for, for anything, for any problem, 
look at it from multiple angles. Look at it from the visual side. Look at it from the mathematical side. Look at it from the verbal side. You know, act it out, sound it out, write it out, you know, whatever. Just as many different angles as you can. Yeah, I think that it humanizes it. It validates every individual has a different method that works for them, right? So when you represent it in those five different ways, some kids are going to latch onto one and some onto another. But I think you're right. It's a good reminder that it's always worthwhile. Even if there's only one kid who it doesn't work for, that student is worth your effort, right? So it's like the, the dignity of each student, I think, is affirmed in that 95% is not enough. You got to figure out a way to try to reach everybody. Yeah, yeah. So I think that brings us to sort of this next question that I've been wondering, because, you know, I, I taught for the last two years, but currently I'm not teaching. I'm back in graduate school. So I've I do have some experience with teaching during COVID, uh, which is what I want to ask about. But I only taught for COVID from March through June of, of last year. And I don't have the experience of teaching during COVID for this entire school current school year. And I'm wondering what differences do you see uh, with teaching under COVID restrictions and all that entails? And um, what impact do you think um, it's had on your teaching on your classroom? Um, yeah. It's a really good question. I think that it is a categorical difference, at least from my experience, between last spring when you had 75% of a year with your students and then this once-in-a-lifetime event occurred that everyone felt like, okay, we have to just get through this and finish the year. That was, The mindset was like, this is temporary. We just have to do our best. And then for me, starting this year at a new school where from the very beginning of the year, virtual was our reality. And there was a, a possibility that we remained virtual for the whole year, right? Where we've, we've since moved to a hybrid model, but for many students, they have only been virtual. So for me as a new teacher, it created a, a real challenge of not having relationships already and having to try to form those virtually. And that's been my biggest uh, obstacle this year because like so much of what we talked about today relationships lead to results they have to know you care and that's just harder to facilitate via a screen and I think we see that in all aspects of life but especially as a new teacher talking to new kids if they don't really know you um, it's it's a it's a really difficult path so one thing was a readjustment of expectations um, our school shortened its day created more breaks to try to prevent burnout. So instead of, my understanding is last year they would go like 7.30 to 4.30. It was a super long day because at Cristo wow. Ray schools, every student works one day a week, so you have less academic time. Now we only are in school from 9 a.m. to 2 p.m. So students have four one-hour periods of day, one hour for lunch, and so there's less. In addition to that, every teacher was told, you know, look at whatever you plan for the year and expect to maybe hit 75% of that basically to reduce expectations in acknowledgement of the whole person, right? So this is my first year at a Jesuit school, but they uphold this concept of cura personalis, of educating the whole person, right? And I think that in the time of COVID, that is essential because we have to recognize that our students have all kinds of challenges happening to them outside of the classroom, whether that's with family or health or, you know, the political issues that have been happening throughout the year, so understanding that our students, you know, the most important thing in their life right now is probably not algebra or English, and that's okay. It's been a different, it's a different approach. That's usually not something that a teacher has to really think about. But this year, 
since, you know, I think we're going to look back at this as a generational impact, this, this event really like changing life for a whole generation of kids. Like how can we be pastoral to them while still trying to prepare them for what's next? It's, it's been a lot, a lot to try to get in, especially in a new school. Yeah. Wow. I can't even imagine. Yeah. Cause I, I totally agree with you about the the last year being this sort of temporary thing, right? And I already knew all my students. I had established relationships with them. So it's easier to follow up virtually if you know them in person and you shoot them a message and you say, hey, why haven't you turned this in? Or, you know, we're having a Zoom meeting and, you know, they'll feel comfortable joining Zoom because they already know you in person. But starting virtually and, you know, for the schools in the world and in the country who um, have done their entire school year virtually, I can't even imagine how, how difficult that must be. I think that there is a, a tendency to to see all the technological marvels that allow for remote learning, which are truly amazing. It's amazing that we have Zoom and all these platforms. But to see that as like, oh, well, maybe, you know, this is just the new normal. Maybe we can just, you know, keep doing this and, and you know, work from home. And for a lot of industries, work from home is great. Work from home is fine. Um, you can be just as productive from home. I just don't think teaching is one of those one of those industries. I think so much, as we've already discussed, is about the interpersonal interaction, about the presence, right? And this is another term that has been used by one of my mentors, um, the ministry of presence, right? Where you are, just by being present, you are showing that you care, you are, you are being there. And, and you don't know if that's gonna make the difference for, for a kid, right? Um, that it may not be the exact lesson or uh, you know, what content was learned that year, but just having a reliable adult presence that is there for them you know, in the classroom consistently. Um, it's, it's very difficult to replicate that through a screen. Yes. I remember being shocked that that was one of the primary takeaways of getting a master of education degree was the impact of having one trusted, reliable adult in their life can move the needle for a child so much. It seems so simple, but it's like, it's this essential thing that, you know, teachers are trying to do. And most of the time you never find out if it worked or not. You just have to trust that if you keep showing up and you keep doing the right things, that you're going to be helping some kids out. Yeah. Wow. I, I don't know if I can add anything to that, Mike. I think that's a great way to sum up um, the experience. And again, every every teacher's experience is unique. Um, and, you know, I can't speak for everyone, but I think all teachers share the the understanding that it's extremely rewarding, that, that you're making an impact and that there's um, just the opportunity for so much um, impact on a student at a very formative time in their life. Um, and so, yeah, I wouldn't, wouldn't trade my two years teaching for, for anything. Um, but, but Mike, I want to, I want to be mindful of your time. Um, and so you've been really generous with, with speaking with me tonight. Um, so I'm, I'm really, really grateful. Um, it's been, it's been great to hear about your journey through business and teaching and, you know, wherever life takes you, I wish you all the best. Um, and I know that you're going to have a huge impact on, on those around you, wherever you are.